there is an issue of identity and race in the making and application of international law. And that became, I think, crucial when we got to the International Court of Justice, because the composition of the International Court of Justice was different from the composition of the Annex 7 Arbitral Tribunal. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. This episode of Asymmetrical Haircuts is supported by JusticeInfo.net. Hi, this is Asymmetrical Haircuts. I'm Janet Anderson. I'm with my co-host, Stephanie Pandembert. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. Well, we've got a special one today. We've got the inimitable professor, lawyer, Queen's Counsel, writer, performer, Philippe Sands today. Hi, Philippe. Welcome. Lovely to be with you both, um, Janet and Stephanie, and uh, looking forward to a far-reaching and interesting conversation. Now, practically everybody listening to this knows who you are, but maybe we can summarise by saying, uh, quote, we see him there, we see him there, those international law junkies see him everywhere. That's a rewrite of the description of the Scarlet Pimpernel, which I think applies to you. We do watch you both at the International Criminal Court, the International Court of Justice. We read your books on the history of genocide, crimes against humanity. We wish that we'd been in Edinburgh recently to watch you and Adwa Ando in August performing. And Stephanie wrote in, what did you write in there, Steph? Uh, don't forget that he also has his own podcast based on his book, The Ratline. So we also have a fellow podcaster here. So you are a bit ubiquitous. You get out around a lot in our world. But today we're going to talk about Chagos because of the new book that you've written at The Last Colony. So Stephanie, in Reuters, inimitable style as well, what about uh, what's the, the agency background that we have to have in order to understand where we are? The Reuters blurb is the Chagos Archipelago is a group of islands in the Indian Ocean. Britain in 1965 detached the Chagos Islands from its colony of Mauritius, which became independent three years later. And uh, what Britain says is the sparsely populated Chagos remained as overseas British territory. Now, the UK wanted to hang on to that because the United States has leased one of the Chagos Islands, its biggest island, Diego Garcia, since 1966 in order to have an air base there because it was of strategic importance, they felt. Now, the entire population of the Chagos Islands, which is around 1,500 people, was forced to leave. And in 2017, Mauritius petitioned the United Nations to seek an advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice, the UN's highest court on the legality of this move where they kind of did a switch and bait where they first separated Mauritius from Chagos and then gave Mauritius independence but still kept Chagos. Despite opposition from Britain and the UK, which of course wants to keep its military base on this Chagos island, uh, the General Assembly voted to send this to the ICJ. And then finally, and then I'll stop my stuffopedia, in February 2019, the International Court of Justice found that the Chagos Archipelago was unlawfully separated from Mauritius and that violated the right to self-determination and that the UK is under the obligation to end its administration of the Chagos Islands as, as rapidly as possible. And here we have a clip of President Yusuf of the ICJ saying that bit precisely. In response to question B of the General Assembly relating to the consequences under international law that arise from the continued administration by the United Kingdom of the Chagos Archipelago, the court concludes that the United Kingdom has an obligation 
to bring to an end its administration of the Chagos archipelago as rapidly as possible, and that all member states must cooperate with the United Nations to complete the decolonization of Mauritius. Then the UN General Assembly, which had, you know, the body that had asked for that advisory opinion, then voted overwhelmingly in favour of the UK leaving the islands by the end of November 2019. But of course, or not of course, but the UK does not accept the ICJ and the UN rulings, and it argues that the islands are needed to protect Britain from security threats, and that is because of that base that the US has on Diego Garcia. It takes a long time just to get through all of the background. Stephanie's read your book, so she knows how you handle it in the book. Philippe, why don't we just start off with the case itself at the ICJ? I'm wondering how you got involved, because... I've met various UK lawyers and they talk to me about the cab rank rule. You know, you take whoever comes into your um, backseat of your cab. So were you trawling for this for a case like this? Did you want to do one or did they approach you? Did you approach them? How did it work? Thank you for the summary, which I'll add a little bit to because it's indeed an even more uh, complex and interesting legal story. I mean, in a sense, the last colony tells the whole story of how this was litigated over the last 10 years, how you design and implement a legal strategy. And one of the things I wanted to do with this book is actually tell it how it is, not how the law books tell you, not how the public domain tells you, but how you plan a case, how you decide who's going to sit and not sit. But let me just go back to the beginning part of the question. How did I get involved? Did I did I troll for the case? I didn't. I'm very pleased to say I've never in my life gone after a particular case. I am very fortunate. Enough interesting cases come to me. And it was April 2010. I was on a skiing holiday with a very good friend of mine in France. And I was literally at that bit when you're on the chairlift coming off and your phone rings and uh, it's an unknown number. Uh, and you're, so, I'm, I'm sort of terrified that I'm going to drop my phone into the snow from a great height and lose it. But I took it out. I managed to unbuckle myself, jump off. I had my skis on. And it was the office of the Prime Minister of Mauritius who was getting in touch to say that Britain had decided, and this was the critical action in 2009, to create a marine protected area. I'd read a bit about it in papers that they wanted to protect the environment. I knew nothing about Chagos. And he wanted to challenge the decision to create the marine protected area and challenge Britain's claim to sovereignty over the Chagos archipelago. Would I be willing to have a conversation to see whether I would accept instructions? We had that conversation. I accepted instructions. Very interestingly, in terms of your listeners and how Prime Minister of a particular country goes to a particular individual, I'd written a book about five years earlier called Lawless World, which had as its heart my belief on as to the illegality of the war in Iraq and laying out the story of how various legal opinions were obtained, procured, changed, so on and so forth. And the Prime Minister of Mauritius at the time, Navi Rangulam, said to me, I wanted you because I wanted to hire someone who I knew was not scared of taking on his own country. And I'd read your book, about Iraq and lawless world. Ram Gulam himself was a member of the English bar and so knew how it worked. And that was how it began. And what we did was we sat down and very specifically designed a strategy. We didn't start with the ICJ because as things stood in 2009, 2010, we took the view that there was 
very little, if any, chance that Mauritius would be able to persuade the General Assembly to send a request for an advisory opinion to the International Court of Justice. Two permanent members of the Security Council, Mauritius population, one million. It was just a real impossible David and Goliath situation. So we decided instead, just to explain, to go a different route, to go the law of the sea route. It was an Annex 7 arbitration tribunal, a panel of five arbitrators. And, and it is important for the ICJ because it's about the comity between international courts and the extent to which they listen and don't listen. We basically put two questions to the Annex 7 arbitral tribunal under the Law of the Sea Convention. Is the marine protected area lawful? Has Mauritius's rights been respected, particularly, for example, in terms of consultations? And the tribunal ruled unanimously, no, that decision was illegal and violated Mauritius's rights under the Law of the Sea Convention. But there was a second issue that we put on the Mauritius side before the Annex 7 Arbitral Tribunal, and that was this. Who is the coastal state? Is it the United Kingdom or is it Mauritius? And the tribunal declined to exercise jurisdiction on that question by three votes to two. Okay, It voted that it only a law of the sea tribunal, an annex seven tribunal, only has jurisdiction over maritime matters, not sovereignty over land. And then in, in your book, you outline this very much that then the dissenting opinions are actually what's important to you. And that's why I raise it. You, to understand what the ICJ did, you need to look at the two dissenting opinions. Judge Wolfram of Itlos, Germany, Judge Kateka of Tanzania, Itlos, and they said no. The majority's got it wrong. Where the issue is intimately connected to, to the interpretation of the word coastal states, we have jurisdiction. And they went further. Not only do we have jurisdiction, the tribunal should have ruled that Chagos is part of Mauritius, pursuant to violations of the laws and the rights of self-determination. So for the first time, and this was the interesting point, for the first time ever, two international judges expressed a clear view in favour of Mauritius. And although the majority of the three declined to exercise jurisdiction, they said nothing on the merits. So no arbitrator or judge spoke against Mauritius's argument. And that caused, by then it was 2015, there was a new prime minister of Mauritius, Anurud Jugnat, said, I am instructing you on the basis of these dissenting opinions. It's a bit like Philip Jessup in the Southwest Africa case in 1966, hoping for the intelligence of a better day. And we went on the basis of those two very articulate dissenting opinions. Now, there's one other point here that normally on a podcast like this, you would not talk about. But in this book, I'm, I talk about these issues. Look at the composition of the panel. You'll have noticed, Stephanie, I say this in the book. I will be criticized for having said it. Who was the majority? Three white Anglo-Saxon men from the Commonwealth. Who was the dissent? A black man and a German man. And it may be that that is entirely coincidental, or it may not. And that's the kind of issue I want us, not in this podcast, but generally as international lawyers, as students, as practitioners, to be thinking about. There is an issue of identity and race in the making and application of international law. And that became, I think, crucial when we got to the International Court of Justice, because the composition of the International Court of Justice was different from the composition of the Annex 7 Arbitral Tribunal. Oh, God, we're going to go in depth, I think, aren't we, Stephanie, into the composition of the International Court of Justice, because, you know, your case has actually um, caused quite a lot of changes in the end. But, Stephanie, do you want to get back to the, um, you know, some of the detail of the case itself? 
Well, I wanted to say that one detail that I also found super interesting in the book is that after this arbitral ruling, there was a taste for going to the ICJ and there was some uh, feeling, putting the feelers out of how this case would be. And then Mauritius might be able to go to the ICJ because Mauritius was sounding out whether they could go to the ICJ. The UK changed its objections to who could bring a case before the ICJ, basically closing off the direction for a full case in front of the ICJ. Because you can also wonder, why do you want an advisory opinion? Why could you just not have a claim against the UK? But that is because you current members and former members of the Commonwealth cannot bring cases against the UK. They don't accept the jurisdiction of the court. If you go back to 2010, the first thing we suggested to the Prime Minister was, let us identify all the options. And one of the most obvious options, obviously, would be a contentious case before the International Court. But in 2000, Mauritius had decided it would begin the proceedings of going to the International Court of Justice. It was then advised by Ian Brownlee, I should say, it was only because of Ian's unfortunate, untimely death in a car accident that I became involved. And we I want to pay credit to his legal work. He had done legal opinions in the 80s and 90s for Mauritius, which we relied upon extensively for our legal arguments. And many of the legal arguments were based on the outstanding legal work uh, of Ian Brownlee. We excluded the ICJ because there's no contentious jurisdiction. The situation as of 2003-2004 was essentially that Disputes between members of the Commonwealth were excluded by the UK's acceptance of the optional clause, Article 36. So what Mauritius decided to do, and it went into cabinet, was to withdraw from the Commonwealth so that it would be a former member and not caught by the exclusion. Regrettably, a member of the cabinet mentioned that. It was reported in the media. It made its way straight back to London and within literally hours. The United Kingdom changed acceptance of the jurisdiction, of course. The lesson here is, if you're going to be involved in these cases, do not speak to anybody about what you are doing under any circumstances ever until it's all over. Pesky journalists are always a problem. If we go back to the book, that is also very much the story of Elysee, who was also at the ICJ, a Chagossian woman. She was then 65. Uh, she is one of the people who was forcibly removed in 1973. Her speech in the Great Hall of Justice was really very touching and very moving. And she spoke in a, in a very direct way to the judges, something we don't often see at the ICJ. So let's listen to a few words of her speech. As I said, it, it's very direct, it, it's very heartfelt. Uh, she's speaking in Creole, so let's just repeat a bit of what she said. She said, we were like animals on that slave ship. We were expelled by force. Elise recalled that she was pregnant when she was forced to leave. And after that, 
boat trip to go from her island to Mauritius. Her child was stillborn later. And she insists that justice must be done. And she says, I must return to where my ancestors are buried. Why did you choose to have her address the court? It's it's really not the usual uh, way uh, that that is done in the ICJ. And it might, you know, the judges are very prim and proper and, and usually very elderly. That's a risk to take. There was a precedent that I've been involved in, and maybe there are others that I'm less directly aware of. In the advisory opinion on the legality of nuclear weapons in 1995, the Marshall Islands brought to the court, and she appeared in person and spoke from Rostrum, um, a lady who had lost a child as a consequence of atmospheric nuclear testing around Bikini Atoll and other places. So so it had happened before, and I had been in court then and seen the effect. In short, the decision was, in this case, again, strategic, that the lawyers and the government and the prime minister, who was involved in every aspect of decision-making, the Solicitor General and the ambassador in New York, we all agreed that we needed to get away from a sort of dry technical legal case. The UK was going to argue that this is a dispute about sovereignty. And our position was, no, it's not. This is about something else. This is about decolonization. And this is about self-determination. And those issues have to be determined before you get to the question of sovereignty. And having opened that door, it became very clear to us that the court, we thought, must hear from the people who are most directed by what had happened, the people who'd been actually removed and the people who are still alive and wish to go back. And so we toddled off to Mauritius and we met a lot of members of the Chagossian community. And in the end, we selected uh, Lisby Elysee as likely to be the most effective in the telling of a story in a concise and clear way, powerful, a woman. I think judges react differently to women than they do to men. And we filmed her and I describe in the book, it, you know, we were very conscious. The judges of the International Court of Justice will not want to see, let's speak very frankly, a weeping black lady in their courtroom. And each time she told her story, she did weep. And we came to a point when we were deciding how to proceed with this, that we had a sort of bifurcation. We could either just edit it and cut out that bit right at the end where she wept. But then we thought, no, we can't do that because that is really disrespectful of her. We're going to have to take it on the chin and risk the possibility that some of the judges won't like that. That was a balancing exercise. And in the end, we, we came down in favour of protecting the dignity of the individual, the rights, the autonomy of Lisby Elysee. She is the beating heart of this story. And I have to say, I think that was the right call. I think that her three minutes and 47 seconds of testimony was a transformative moment. I've never experienced anything quite like it in the court. And I described through my conversations with Lisby Elysee how she felt about that. But in particular, and again, it comes back to the question of the composition of the court. You know, of course, international judges are independent. I sit as an international arbitrator. I think I'm independent. But every international judge comes to their case with baggage. And the baggage includes their own personal background, their own history, their own ideas, their own culture, their own ideology, and their own nationality and their own colour. And I have to say, to happen to have had at that point a man sitting in the presidency who was a black man from Africa meant that for Lisby Elysee, 
as she put it to me, she was in a safe space. She was standing before a president who would understand her. And I think that played very significantly. It was obviously not, we couldn't choose who was going to be the president of the court. That was a coincidence. But the reason I put that in the book is that my experience now litigating before that court for well over 30 years is that these things do really matter. For students, for practitioners, it's not just the mechanical application of the law to the facts. There's a whole raft of other things that come into play. And what I wanted to give people a sense of in writing the book was that at each stage, we reflected very, very carefully on all of these things, on the pros, on the cons of different directions, different ways of doing it. Just the drafting of the two questions that went to the court, we must have put in well over a thousand hours, four or five of us. And it took three years to draft those questions. And I think with benefit of hindsight, we got those questions absolutely right. And we knew that in the drafting of the questions, we had to eliminate as much as possible wiggle room for the court in trying to avoid giving an answer. It had to be, to the extent possible, a yes, no answer from which consequences flowed. And that was how we drafted the questions. And I have to say, in that sense, the drafting of the questions, I don't take credit for the drafting of the questions. We had an extraordinary team led by the ambassador of Mauritius, a remarkable man, Kunjul, Jagdish Kunjul, and Elizabeth Wilmshurst, who had been a foreign office legal advisor, the deputy who famously and courageously resigned from the foreign office in 2003 because of the illegality of the Iraq war, which she characterized as a crime of aggression. And it took a huge amount of time. And in drafting the questions, we were at all times acutely conscious of the composition of the court. Again, many people who are listening may imagine that when a team, well, most teams, you know, you just go and find the facts, go and find the law, stand up and speak the things out to the court. That is not how it happens. You go through, in my case, every single judge and you prepare a matrix of all the decisions they've taken, of all of their writings, of all of the backgrounds, and you design a legal argument, which is not a single unitary argument, but which will play to the particular desires of different judges in the hope of creating a majority. And in drafting the questions, that was what we did. We looked at the composition and took it from there. Because just uh, to give some background to the people who are not so, so into the ICJ, uh, what happens a lot at the ICJ, and I'm going to just paraphrase this as the journalist that I am, is that they get a question which could answer a lot more things, but they tend to limit themselves to very legal answers. I remember the advisory opinion about Kosovo. There was a thought that they could say a lot more about the legality of Uh, Serbia's actions and those things, and they just kind of gave a very, very uh, answer only to that question. So in crafting that question to get the judges to answer in a way that is useful to do other things, you really need to be super precise as you did and to craft something that is it's impossible to kind of dodge and weave out of legally. Philip, I was just listening to you saying, and I was thinking international law nerds the world over will be delighted to hear that the kind of work that they do, sort of where they look through the opinions of each judge and the dissents of each judge and so on, they try to understand everything about it. That's exactly what, what all of these scholars do. And that's what you do as well in your team. Well, yes, up to a point. They do do that. But 
there is in the world of international law a high degree of deference from the scholarly community to the judicial community. And I think that's right when you're a younger scholar and there are certain things that are not talked about. Again, let me give an example. I was very struck back in 1995, first case I appeared before the court, advisory opinion on nuclear weapons. At a certain moment, I was acting for the four Pacific Island states, Samoa, Solomon Islands, Marshall Islands, Micronesia. And the team was led by a wonderful lawyer and a wonderful human being, Neroni Slade, who went on to become a judge at the International Criminal Court. And this moment of this hearing happened to coincide with France's decision to resume nuclear testing in the South Pacific, underground, not overground. And the opening statement by Neroni Slade as agent for Samoa, he said, let me begin by saying how outraged my government and my people are for the decision of France to resume nuclear testing, at which point a number of us saw something happen that has never been written about and would never normally be written about, but which I've decided to put in the book. There are points of detail in this book which will upset some people, but which nevertheless need to be said. I described that a number of us observed a certain judge, the French judge, remove his earphones, put his earphones on his table, and sit and give the impression that he was not listening. That was the first time I'd been in a case, and I just said to my colleagues, what is that? Judges listen irrespective of what is said, and they have to be poker-faced, and they do not demonstrate partiality or support one way or another. Now, that fact, I then subsequently called four people to just check my recollection, and everyone said, yep, absolutely. And I got the emails from all of them saying, yeah, we saw that. I put in the book. As a younger scholar, I would never put that in the book for obvious reasons. And even as an older scholar and part of the community, as my dear friend Alan Pelle calls it, the mafia of international lawyers, I would not put that in the book because it would maybe upset someone. But no, judge has public responsibilities. It was open in court. And I thought at the end, no, that happened. Let's say that. Why did I put it in? Not, And I didn't name the judge, but why did I put it in? Because I think people need to understand how the bench on the court actually functions in certain situations to understand that this is not like being in the high court in London where you turn up. There is a political element. There is a national element. And you've got to be acutely aware of it as you're choosing how and where to litigate a case. The UK has used these kind of uh, UN uh, human rights conventions. Uh, we think about places like the Falklands and Gibraltar to suggest that you know the rights of the residents are paramount and therefore you know, certain things have to remain the way that they are in places like the Falklands. Yet it's just run roughshod over those kinds of human rights conventions when it comes to the Chagos. Is this, I mean, the term I think there's use, is this post-colonial hypocrisy? I mean, how, how do you define the way that the U UK has operated in this sphere? What's the difference? One community is black and one community is white. Any who have been involved in this very sad case, one of the moments where that came to the fore, Stephanie described the vote at the General Assembly following the ICJ advisory opinion. It was overwhelming. Only four countries in the world 
supported the United Kingdom and the United States in opposing what became Resolution 73295. Hungary, the Maldives, Israel, and Australia. After the vote, the British ambassador to the United Nations, who is today the British ambassador to the United States, a distinguished diplomat, very decent person, made a post-vote statement, which is what you're allowed to do. In the course of that statement, again, I say it in the book, she said, for the avoidance of doubt, let me be completely clear, Britain supports the right of self-determination for the Falkland Islanders. Now, what she was heard by many to be saying is that it is a right of self-determination for one community, the whites, but not for the blacks. That was a most unfortunate statement. One of the reviews of the book has picked me up on that, but I'm very sorry to say it happened. And the question for somebody in my position is, do I just pass over in silence on such a thing or in a courteous, accurate way, just describe what happened? Why would I do that? Why I would do that is that it goes to the heart of your question, Janet. I'm very sorry to say this, but it is impossible to conclude that Britain's position is motivated by factors that do not include race and the colour of people's skin. I have reached the conclusion that there is no doubt in my mind that if the Chagossians were white, this would never have happened. Or if it had happened, they would have been allowed back by now because there would have been such an outrage in the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph that they would have been allowed back. And so this book about international law, about Liz Bielise, about my engagement with international law necessarily also says things about a country that I'm a national of, which I'm extremely attached to, and which I give the greatest imaginable credit to for being probably the only country in the world where you as a national litigate against it for 12 years in a very public and contentious way, and no one ever says to you it's inappropriate. If I was doing it against France, it would be totally different. I'm still paying a price for having argued against France in 1995 on the nuclear tests. In Britain, there is an absolute respect for the independence of the advocate, and that is a marvellous thing. But equally, those who read this book need to understand what motivates this behaviour. And right now in the era of Black Lives Matter, you can't just find reasonable, lovely, decent, clean excuses for what is going on. And if you speak to the Chagossians, they will say to you far more articulately than I ever can, this has happened to us because we are black. And it's impossible to say that they're wrong. I felt really... Uh, moving detail in your book is where Lisbeth is talking about going back on one of those heritage tours and they went to the um, cemeteries of her parents and her, her grandparents and her ancestors and they are cleaning up the cemetery and then as part of this tour they come also to the Diego Garcia Island and they see the cemetery where the Chagossians are buried and it's it's completely overgrown and they see another cemetery Uh, that the Americans built, and that's very nicely maintained. And that is the cemetery for the dogs that the Americans had on the Diego Garcia Island. So the, the cemetery for the U.S. military dogs is better maintained than of the, the ancestors of the Chibagossian people who were chased away. And that's just, it defies thinking about what are you thinking about when you do that, you know? When I was told that story, 
I knew, I mean, I, I use in writing this book or East West Street or whatever I write exactly the same standards as if I'm appearing before the International Court of Justice. I'm not interested in rumors and scuttlebutt and this and that. I need facts. I need to know, I need to be able to substantiate that. So when I was told that story, to be honest, I was sort of incredulous. I really couldn't believe that there had been no upkeep of the cemeteries of the Chagossians and of the colonial administrators. It's not just the Chagossians, actually. It's also the colonial administrators. But no, I've now been there. I went there in February and they sent me, Olivier Bancou sent me photographs. And he sent me photographs of the dog cemetery. And it's shocking. It's deeply, deeply shocking. And again, you're not the first to say when some people have told me when they read that, they've wept. And it, that is who we are. And that raises some fundamental questions. I mean, just to make the link with maybe we come to this in, in due course. That is why when the United Kingdom goes to a number of African countries and says, help us oust Russia from Ukraine in circumstances in which Russia is illegally occupying the territory of Ukraine. Help us. And the African countries say, no, you're a hypocrite. You are illegally occupying the territory of Africa and you have the gall to ask us to help you sort out this particular problem. You get your house in order and then come and see us. Because we have had a very different uh, vote by the UN General Assembly, uh, as you've said, on Ukraine. So Britain's reputation has changed. That's also been reflected in the composition of the bench in the ICJ. It's no longer P5. It's now P4. I do tell the story of what happened, but it concerns a an election that was fought in 2017, Six candidates for five slots. Four of the candidates were elected. Three of the four serving judges and one new judge, the Lebanese judge, which is Salam, leaving one slot and two candidates. And the two candidates were both serving judges, the Indian judge, Judge Bandari, and the British judge, Judge Greenwood. And there was a pretty tough battle between those two judges. Now, in normal circumstances, since the Permanent Court of International Justice was created in 1919, all the way through to 2017, the PCIJ and its successor, the ICJ, International Court of Justice, have always had a British judge. Always. There's never not been a British judge on the court. And up comes this election, and it becomes a vote, which could lead to the British judge leaving, losing his seat. And in that context, Chagos became one of the key issues in the vote. Why? Because India is Mauritius's strongest supporter on this question of completing the decolonization of Mauritius. The majority population of Mauritius is of Indian origin. And so there are very close relations. And one was faced with a situation in which you know, it's reasonable to suppose that an Indian judge would be more likely to support the arguments made by Mauritius and the African Union, because Mauritius was not alone, than the British judge who had sat on the Annex 7 arbitration and already ruled that there was no jurisdiction and competence. And the vote went in a direction which, of course, was in the end unsatisfactory for the United Kingdom. But what had not been told until I published this book 
is that the country that actually finally pulled the plug on the British candidate was the United States. It was because President Trump, of whom I am certainly no friend, had no closer friend, as he put it, than Prime Minister Modi. And so the United States adopted a position of equidistance between the two candidates. The US ambassador at that moment, Haley, was out of New York and her chief of mission circulated a letter calling for support of Judge Greenwood. She heard about that. She was contacted by the Indians who said, we thought you were neutral. And she instructed that the letter circulated by her mission be withdrawn. And that act of withdrawing a letter of support for Judge Greenwood became the straw that broke the camel's back, as I was told by numerous ambassadors at the United Nations. And I've got the all the letters, I've got the correspondence, I've seen what happened. So again, it's the real politique of what happens on these particular votes. There's deep irony there, isn't there? I mean, the sense of the Chagos Islands being leased to the US for their base. I mean, it's all about the UK protecting America's interests, no? At that point, the vote is not about Chagos. The vote is about who will be the next judge on the international court. And it's the Chagos issue is not at the forefront of the minds of the Americans. But there is an irony there. And there's an irony for another reason, again. I happen to be married to an American, and she is forever telling me that the special relationship is a one-way relationship. It doesn't go in both directions. I was very torn about this because I'd known Chris Green for many years. He was my teacher. We've done cases together. We were colleagues together at the University of London. And he has been a fantastic judge at the International Court of Justice. And as a British national, there was necessarily a sense of sadness that Britain would lose its position on the court. But that's how the world is now. And it's even more how the world is in the post-Brexit world. I mean, again, I describe it. To my mind, there's no question that if Brexit had not happened, the prospects of Mauritius getting this case to the International Court of Justice would have been significantly diminished. But Britain's power just evaporated at the international, at the United Nations General Assembly. All the EU members stopped lobbying for the UK on the two resolutions. They were really upset with the UK. And it's not just those countries, but those countries have networks of colleagues and associates and allies. And once a group of 27 stops negotiating and lobbying and going to bat for you, you feel the winds change. And there's no question, British diplomats, British legal advisors, British lobbying is absolutely first rate, second to none anywhere in the world. This was about a toxic combination of Brexit, Iraq and Chagos, which have combined to diminish Britain's international authority. I hope not forever, but certainly uh, for now. And in this book, I wanted to call a spade a spade about that, because I think it is unjust in relation to Judge Greenwood to leave the sense that somehow his campaign was inadequate, the foreign office campaign for him was inadequate. He faced insurmountable hurdles because of positions taken by the United Kingdom, which were not of his making. 
And if we we turn back to the Chagos case in the ICJ, the court has ordered the UK to kind of give it back. The UN has done that. So what is now the situation? What has happened with the UK and the Chagos Islands? Where are we now? Well, there's one other bit of the story that is extremely important, that just as a little gap to be plugged. I, I won't take too long on it. But after the vote in the General Assembly in May 2019, you'll have noted that one of the four countries that voted against the resolution was the Maldives. Basically, this is me speaking, I reached the conclusion that they'd been leaned on by the British for all sorts of reasons. Why would the Maldives be the only developing country in the world to vote against decolonization of Mauritius? I mean, there's got to be something going on. What you need to know about the Maldives is the Maldives shares a maritime boundary with Chagos. And over many years, Maldives has declined to delimit that maritime boundary. So what we decided to do on behalf of Mauritius, what Mauritius did, was to start another case at the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, based in Hamburg, created under the Law of the Sea Convention, to delimit the maritime boundary between Chagos, Mauritius, and the Maldives. And we did it for tactical reasons in part, because we knew that the Maldives would put in preliminary objections. They would say, oh, this court can't decide this issue of jurisdiction, this, this issue of delimitation. It doesn't have jurisdiction because there is a pending dispute over sovereignty over who has title over Chagos. Is it the United Kingdom or is it Mauritius? We they made that argument and Mauritius responded by saying, no, the situation has changed since the arbitral award of 2015 from the Annex 7 tribunal that we have been talking about earlier, the one in which two arbitrators dissented. The ICJ has given an advisory opinion, which in effect unanimously, there's no dissent on the merits. One judge voted against on jurisdiction, Judge Donahue, excellent judge, and dissented on jurisdiction, but not on the merits. And that, Mauritius argued, is transformative. There is no longer a dispute. It has been settled definitively by the International Court of Justice. And this is significant because it goes to the weight and authority of an advisory opinion, which for your listeners need to understand, is not binding as such on states. It's binding on the UN. And following the advisory opinion, the UN has changed its map. And the UN world map, if you go on the UN website, you will see the map shows Chagos as part of Mauritius, not as part of the United Kingdom, not even disputed. So this case goes to Hamburg. And what does the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea rule it rules that the advisory opinion is authoritative. It has disposed of the dispute. There is no dispute. Chagos belongs to Mauritius. We can exercise jurisdiction and we will now proceed to delimit the maritime boundary. And the hearings on the merits phase start next month in October. And so that is coming up and we're all preparing for that. But the central point of the case is that another international tribunal has ruled by eight votes to one, again, the only dissent is the American judge, Bernie Oxman, a very fine lawyer, but he doesn't dissent on the merits. He dissents on jurisdiction. He says, no, you can't exercise jurisdiction over this issue. That view was a minority view, tiny minority, eight judges voted the other way. And so we now have two international rulings. The UK says, well, the advisory opinion isn't binding on us as such. And the it loss judgment is only binding on Mauritius and the Maldives, which, of course, strictly speaking, is true. But the upshot of all of this is, if you take the three cases together, 28 international judges 
have now had a chance to express a view on this matter. How many have supported the UK claim on sovereignty? Zero. Not a single one. It's over. It's finished. And the British know the ground is shifting under their feet. So the question now is how to move forward, how to find a face-saving way out for the United Kingdom. There have already been other changes. The Chagossians, Mauritius, and I, and other of the lawyers, went to Chagos in February of this year. That's the first time. And it was extraordinarily moving to be there with Liz Bielizay and Olivier Bancou and three other uh, Chagossians to visit, quite frankly, the most beautiful place I have ever seen in my whole life. The UK will change position. Its position is untenable. I mentioned earlier the consequences for its Ukraine policy and for other policies. It's not only losing judges, it's been, you know, biot, the British Indian Ocean Territory has been thrown out of the Universal Postal Union. It's going to be thrown out of other organizations. You can't use British Indian Ocean Territory stamps anymore. And next, Mauritius is going to go to the International Civil Aviation Organization and the International Mar. You know, it's just these things take time. Um, we're just a small team, but it's over for the British. The outcome will be that Mauritius will be able to exercise sovereignty over the whole of the Chagos archipelago. The only question is when. Mauritius has said very wisely that the US base will remain. If the British want to be part of that, Mauritius is completely comfortable with that. They have excellent relations with the US uh, and the UK. And Mauritius has offered the United States a 100-year lease for the base. So Diego Garcia will remain. The Chagossians will return to the other islands, Perispania, Salomon, there are 57 other islands. Mauritius has just this summer announced it will create a marine protected area to conserve an extraordinary environment. And it has reached out to the United Kingdom and said, let's do it together. Help us. Use your scientific expertise. We can do this together. And I think that will be the way forward. The $64 million question is... Why is it that the British government has not just said, OK, it's over? They're paying a huge price for this. I think you have to look at the nature of this government to answer that question. And, you know, the combination of characters and individuals and post-Brexit and Empire 2.0 and, you know, we conquer the world and we're going to be great again. And what are the consequences going to be for the Falklands, Malvinas and Gibraltar, blah, blah, blah. No consequences. It's ring fence. Those are not decolonization issues. This is the only decolonization issue like this. It's ring-fenced, and that was how we argued it at the court. So I have no doubt whatsoever, I am 100% certain, this will be sorted. What I don't know is exactly when it will be sorted, and I hope the British do the decent thing and sort it in good time to allow Lesbia Lisée and others who want to go back to go back and live out the last years of their life on the Chagos Archipelago. Just to, to finish off this part of the podcast, what would you say is the longer-term meaning of the Chagos decision, the broader meaning beyond what it means to the UK or even to the Chagossians? I'm often asked, what are the one or two cases that I've had in my life now, 40 years as an international lawyer, that I will look back on and think, that's I've done my bit, that's things I feel really proud of. One of them is the Pinochet case in 1998, the idea that a former head of state cannot have immunity for having committed international crimes. The other one is undoubtedly Chagos. Not only because of the human aspect, my deep feelings of respect and affection for Lisby and Olivier and all of the colleagues, they're remarkable individuals, but because of the broader issue. This 
was a decision by the International Court of Justice, which was in effect unanimous, which signaled a different world order, one in which they would not shirk their responsibilities, even when faced with a permanent member of the Security Council, and allow a tiny little country in the Indian Ocean, which had the law plainly on its side, to do justice. And so for me, stepping back, and of course, I'm not independent, I'm, I'm parti pris on the whole thing, I hope that this will signal a sense that there is some possibility for the idea of the rule of law, that a, a small country can go to international justice and get its rights vindicated. And that seems to me to be a very big thing. I mean, the matter isn't over. There's more coming. One aspect that is coming, just to highlight where this may, might be heading in the next coming weeks and months, the 1945 statute and judgment in 1946 of Nuremberg recognised that forcible deportations are a crime against humanity. And this brings us back into the terrain about which I've written in East West Street and the writings of Hirsch Lauterpacht and the ideas of Raphael Lemkin. And the forcible removal of Lisbeth Elise and 1,500, 2,000 other individuals was, in my view, a crime against humanity. The refusal to allow them to return following these decisions is a continuing crime against humanity. And the accent, I think, is going to be now increasingly put on that aspect. And we are expecting in the coming weeks, certainly by the end of the year, a report from Human Rights Watch on Chagos as a crime against humanity that continues to this day. So I just hope that the next British government, the next British Prime Minister, makes a decent proposal to sort this out. Mauritius is awaiting a proposal. Mauritius has been told Britain wants to sort this out. It's pretty straightforward to sort it out. I really hope it's sorted out. After all the Chagos, I do want to have one question about Ukraine, because we touched upon it briefly, but you are one of the, I will say, luminaries who has thrown his weight behind this special tribunal for the crime of aggression. Can you give us the kind of elevator pitch of why we need another possibly costly justice mechanism when there is the ICJ, uh, the ICC, the ECHR, and the local Ukrainian prosecutions already looking into uh, the war and, and the results of war? What would be your, why we need this and why it's worth it? The international community has four established international crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, and the crime of aggression. The ICC I can deal with three of them, war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide. And genocide is really in the frame, but there are allegations. The one that the ICC can't address for various reasons to deal with the statute of the ICC is the crime of aggression. And yet I think in this case, as with Nuremberg, it is the most important of all the crimes. The decision to go to war and occupy Ukraine is the starting point of everything else that followed. It is the crime which lies at the heart of the whole thing and from which all other crimes flow. It is also the only crime which leads straight to the top table. It may be possible to pin war crimes and crimes against humanity against Mr. Putin or Mr. Lavrov or defense minister or senior military officer. I don't, I don't know. That's a partly factual matter and partly a legal matter. But I've talked to say, you know, it's, it's going to be a tough call. 
even places like Butcher, we, we don't know enough about the facts, whether it was a policy, whether the decisions from on high, whether on high said we turn a blind eye. The bottom line, to answer your question, is I think it would be a travesty if in five years' time we have trials in The Hague or in Kiev or other parts of the world for a group of relatively low-level military or paramilitary types for heinous acts committed on the territory of Ukraine. But the top table gets off scot-free. So for me personally, the crime of aggression is critical, absolutely critical, for putting the accent on the top table. And if the large powers decline to do so, they are effectively giving the men at the top table, for they are all men, a pass. And I think that would be wrong. It is not actually a costly exercise. Again, watch this space. But very shortly, there is going to be an announcement that the possible setting up of a new institution in The Hague, an interim office of a special prosecutor for the crime of aggression in Ukraine. I can't say more at this point, but you'll definitely want to come back to this. There are prosecutors identified. The cost is de minimis. Why? You're talking about a max of 20 individuals. You're talking about a crime, the facts of which are not complex. It's not like what happened in Butcher, where you've got to send investigators on the ground and do interview. Crime of aggression is relatively straightforward in terms of addressing it. And so it's essentially peanuts. And I've been very clear, if it's anywhere, it must be in the Hague. It must work hand in hand with the International Criminal Court. It must not usurp the International Criminal Court. It must not deflect funds from the International Criminal Court. It must not undermine the International Criminal Court. But it must work together. And I'm hoping that Karim Khan will come to see that this is helpful to him in creating a sort of justice wave. But I can't say to you there will be a special criminal tribunal on the crime of aggression in Ukraine. But what I can tell you is that a number of countries are working very close together to make it happen. Amongst them is not yet one of the larger powers, US, the UK, France, or Germany, for example. And I think until one of those countries comes on board, it, it's not clear to me how far this idea will go. I'm reasonably optimistic that the United Kingdom has an open mind about this. Liz Truss has said that. The French are virulently opposed for reasons that make no sense at all uh, to me, beyond my comprehension, but they were virulently opposed to these kinds of things that in relation to Nuremberg also, maybe they will change their mind. The US is not opposed, but says it's essentially a European decision. And the Germans, of course, who have a green party in the coalition are open to the idea on that side of the coalition, very supportive, I would say even, but the other side, the SPD, are not yet convinced. And in particular, the Germans don't want to do anything that undermines the French. And so I think it's a question of watch this space. The longer it goes on, this dreadful conflict, the more possible this development, I think, uh, becomes. When I first wrote the op-ed piece that I did on the 27th of February, which was simply written in two hours and intended to fill a gap in jurisdiction and make that point, I had no idea it would become a whole thing. I mean, I just did not expect that uh, to happen. I would have said if I'd been asked then zero, percent prospect of this ever happening. Now I think there is a possibility uh, that it will happen. How it will function, how it will work, 
is a different question. But, you know, we know from the world of international law, you know better than anyone, you both, Stephanie, Janet, these things take time. They don't happen overnight. And um, I think it's a question of watch this space. Well, we definitely will do that. That's our job, watching this space. We like to finish off the podcast with uh, our last question for recommendations for our listeners on reading, watching, listening. What have you been up to recently? What would you like to recommend on to people? It doesn't have to be stuff in this area, but it can be. It can be something completely different. We sometimes have zombie movies or science fiction or well, whatever. Do you ever get any time to do any other reading, watching or listening? Oh, my God. Yes. I'm a, absolutely. I listen to podcasts. I watch television shows. I'm just on my second viewing of The Sopranos. We watched it when it came out. We're at season six, episode 20. It's the final one. And then we're just going to start again because it's so brilliant. I do lots of music. I went to a fantastic concert last night at the uh, Hammersmith Apollo. I'll just recommend Magnetic Fields, who I listened to last night. Um, And in particular, my favourite song of Magnetic Fields called The Book of Love. In terms of books right now, I'm reading a new novel by the... Uh, Colombian uh, writer Juan Gabriel uh, Vasquez. Uh, I forget the title of it, but you'll be able to put that up. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, He's described, I think rightly, actually, as the new Gabriel Garcia Marquez. He's an extraordinary writer. And in terms of podcasts, that I would have to go and check on my telephone, what I am listening to. My... The very last podcast that came into my head was that my son, who I just had lunch with today, recommended to me uh, a podcast called This Jungian Life. Um, But I'm very partial to The Daily, uh, which I listen to very often. If you ask me what's the best podcast series I've listened to in the last two or three years, I would cite... A podcast called Tom Brown's Body, which is made by a newspaper called Texas Monthly. But I'm an absolute avid moviegoer. I'm in the middle of uh, the Elsa Ferranti TV series, Series 3, My Brilliant Friend. Fantastic. So that Series 3 isn't as good as Series 1 or 2. We just watched the Woodstock series on Netflix. So no, I'm in constant, constant. Life is just a constant search for things to occupy. Oh, wonderful. Right. Well, we've got a great long list there, which will uh, add everything, links to everything uh, on, uh, on the page. Thank you so much. I mean, our plea just at the end now is uh, now you know us. Can we get you on again sometime in the future when you've got something else that you want to talk to us about? Really, thank you so much for asking me. Thank you for giving attention to The Last Colony. I really appreciate it. Thanks for all you're doing. It's brilliant. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe give us a rating and spread the word.